I can't tell you how many places I've been at where if there was one team that I had to point to when the question was asked, who understands best, I would point to customer support. Welcome to the Startup Smoothie Podcast, where we blend together the best customer experience and operation strategies for startups. We're excited to have you join us today for an insightful conversation on compliance and customer support. Joining us on the show is Scott Benson, a compliance and risk veteran with an impressive background in the startup industry. With his extensive experience in operations, compliance, fraud, and risk functions, Scott has a wealth of knowledge to share with us on the importance of compliance and ensuring excellent customer support. And truthfully, he's just one of my favorite people in the industry, so I hope you enjoy this episode. Customer is always right. It is a cutting-edge, high-tech firm out of the Midwest. Explain business ethics and how they are applied today. Ooh, that's a rough business to be in right now. <laughs> Cousin business is a boom. New technology permits us to do very exciting things. Scott, I cannot begin to tell you how excited I am that you are here. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So you're Scott Benson. You're the compliance and risk guy, right? That's what they tell me. So I want to start off by discussing the notion that both CX and compliance, as well as many other teams, are often merely viewed as costs of doing business. As someone who specializes in CX, I can pitch all day at length about why customer support should not be seen as a cost center. But I was wondering, and I thought it could be a little fun, if you could just start us off by pitching to me about why you think compliance should not be viewed as just a cost of doing business. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly, I think a core concept is going to be that if you are operating in a regulated space and you're doing so absent the controls that are required, that, that are mandated by whatever your particular regulatory obligations might be, whether indirect or direct, um, you know, that can be fatal. It can just be the end of your business. Is compliance a cost center? You know, is it a cost center in that it doesn't generate revenue? I mean, yeah. It's not like you can directly point to it and say, this function, this control, this group of people, they made us money because they don't, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a matter of like you can assign a value. How, how do you assign a value to a function or a process that's predicated on preventing something from happening, right? And whether that's some sort of regulatory infraction that results in a penalty or a fine, or maybe it's reputational loss. Maybe it's a loss of a strategic partner like a bank. Maybe it's loss in, in market position, lost customers, lost revenue, who knows? So if those things don't happen, you've realized success, right? You've been a success. It's job well done, but th there's no real dollar value associated with like, how do you point at that and say everything that you did ensured that that didn't happen. And as a result, here's the value associated with your work. It's hard to do that, right? It's very difficult. And I think that's something that anyone who's operating in a regulatory space is going to struggle with. They understand that compliance is a necessity. They understand that they need to have it, but it still doesn't take away that they struggle with assigning a value to it. Yeah. It actually, it kind of just hearing that, it just reminded me of COVID times where people were getting vaccinated and, you know, there all these precautions were being taken. And I remember thinking at one point, like, we're taking all these precautions, but no one's going to see the benefit of the precautions because the negative outcomes are going to start to decrease, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and it's similar to that and that 
you don't appreciate compliance because compliance is is working and doing its job often. And so you don't have those negative aspects in which you would have, you didn't have proper compliance in place. Right. And if it's working properly, right, it's working quietly, it's working seamlessly, it's behind the scenes. While you have your systems and your controls and, and your vendors and your processes and your policies and everything else that are in place behind the scenes, if it's working as you would like it to work, if it's working as intended, you know that means there's the absolute minimum amount of friction to your customer. There is the absolute minimum amount of impact to your customer so they don't see it. They just see whatever the services that you offer and it's working and they like it and they enjoy it and they can get in and they can use it and that's it. And you know, what's the whole analogy, you know, with like the duck paddling, but their feet are pedaling underneath the water, but you know, above the surface, they look calm and collected. I mean, that's, that's kind of what it is. Right. But I also think you make a, a really fantastic analogy to COVID times, because you look at something like compliance, what is it? How is it something that could correlate to COVID? And, and you know, it's kind of like an insurance plan, right? It's an insurance plan to prevent something negative from happening that could negatively impact your revenue, your profitability, your reputation, the status of your platform. That's that's really what it is. Um, and I guess you could make the argument that the best insurance to have is the kind you hope you never need. Certainly. Sometimes I think insurance is just peace of mind is what you're buying. But um, it's crazy, though, because like the biggest thing I've noticed in regard to the perception of compliance is how early compliance gets involved, you know, especially in fintech. If you're developing, let's say, user onboarding, for instance, and nowhere in that process is someone with a compliance background guiding that process. And then your final check is, oh, let's just validate this with compliance. Compliance is probably going to be a little bit of a dream crusher to your product team or set things back a bit. If compliance is in there early on and helping guide the process, then I think I've noticed a big difference at least. I I think that's a fair point, though I would also argue if you have someone on your product team or your engineering team or your founders or, you know, whoever it might be that's going to be associated with a given project for something that is going to be customer facing or customer impactful, if they have experience doing that, that's going to come into play. Maybe they are not the subject matter expert on it. Maybe they do not have a wide ranging quantity of experience when it comes to all things compliance. But if they have some exposure to it, that exposure kind of permeates a little bit, right? It gives you a place from which to speak, you know, with some measure of of knowledge and and understanding. So I think that's important. If you have people that, you know, it's like they are their their first rodeo. Yeah, it's going to be tough if you bring compliance in at the end of the game, or if you are looking at rolling out a product or service or making some change that has a, um, a substantial amount of complexity involved with it from a regulatory or legal standpoint, you know, perhaps there are multiple compliance disciplines that have to be considered in order to bring this product to market or to make this change. Yeah, it's better if you bring those compliance folks or you know those folks from legal on sooner rather than later, so they don't wind up being the dream killers uh, th- that you <laughs> that you mentioned. Right now, it's a very difficult job, and the only way to get through it is we all work together as a team. And that means you do everything I say. So, Scott, 
Talk to me a bit about the relationship between support and compliance, because I know you've always seen it as something that's pretty vital for the business and for these teams to have a working relationship. I think it's tremendously vital amazingly vital. Number one, I I think when you're just talking about like a a culture of compliance, just across the board, the umbrella of it, it's important that you have a compliance team, no matter the size, Uh, but particularly if it's a smaller team that is engaged, right? That they're engaged across all the other teams that they are working with, that they are supporting. That's tremendously important. So I would start there. But beyond that, the importance of a strong relationship and open, a transparent uh, relationship and involved relationship with compliance and customer support is, you know, uh, customer support, they're the ones that are interacting with your customers on the daily, right? They're fielding the questions. They're responding to the asks. I can't tell you how many places I've been at where if there was one team that I had to point to when the question was asked, you know, who understands best, I would point to customer support. More often than not, they're the ones that best understand the interconnectedness and capabilities of your platform, right? They get the back end, they get the front end because they're on both, right? You know, they, they see and understand what that external user, you know, what that customer can do, but also you have an internal customer as well, right? CS is kind of able to bridge that gap because they're using both of these systems. They know who the problem users are. They know who the problem merchants are, or at least perhaps your problem merchants who are more commonly associated with your problem customers. CS knows what's working as intended versus what is kind of broken. You know, they, they, they have this level of insight that I really don't think you find in other departments because people in other departments are just kind of focused on what it is that they do day in and day out. Generally, or maybe not generally, but more often than not, there's not a lot of need for for them to be touching on all these different bits and pieces. They can kind of step back and they can just sort of focus on what it is that they do, what is their their prime directive, right? But CS doesn't do that. CS has to engage in this balancing act and bridge all of these different things. And I, I think that an element of their experience and role and exposure within the company that I just couldn't emphasize enough as being a tremendously important relationship for your compliance staff to uh, establish and maintain. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more, to be honest. I I can't even imagine working in a department like marketing. I I think customer support knows every problem that users have, what the biggest frustrations are, what they love about it, what they hate about it. It's just, I I, yeah, I honestly, I I can't fathom working in kind of any other aspect because um, in some ways I think it's a little bit of FOMO. I want to know what's going on all the time. But in other ways, it's just I don't know how other departments work effectively without that kind of information. But that's you know everybody's got their skills, I guess. Um, well, I think too. Like let's let's talk about one of the functions of compliance. You know, and, and mm-hmm. that's going to be customer account monitoring, transaction monitoring, whatever whatever you want to yes. call it. And obviously, there's all sorts of different monitoring that you can do. Monitoring is just not limited to transactions. But let's focus on that for a moment, right? What is compliance monitoring, fraud monitoring? What What is typically used for that? You know, it's it's rule sets, it's workflows, they're, they're automated solutions. It's, it's all data, right? But it's data without intuition. 
there's no gut feeling. The human element is removed from that automated solution. It's just impossible to account for all possible permutations of fraud or money laundering or something like that with an automated monitoring solution. At the end of the day, you still need people who have that intuition, who have that gut feeling that they have that insight into what is going on with our users? Where are they transacting? What is a hotspot like on our heat map of, of risk and compliance concerns? What merchants are potentially a problem? What types of services are potentially a problem? And again, this is the type of thing the people in customer support are seeing. People in customer support are a line of defense when it comes to managing fraud, managing yep. compliance concerns. They, they absolutely are. And then the people in that role become even more important at the earlier stage, the startup, because your compliance team, your fraud team, your legal team is probably going to be small. It's very possible that you've got a one-person team. You might have one compliance person, one fraud person. You might have one person doing compliance and fraud. There's got to be active and open engagement between compliance staff, your customer support team, your CS team, when you have a, a good level of communication between these two different teams, that's how you identify trends. That's how you identify patterns and trends and patterns that automated monitoring may have overlooked, you know, or it might not be something that your automated monitoring solution isn't even structured to detect. Yeah. When customer support and compliance teams have a good relationship, it's a lot easier to meet the objectives of each team Somebody in compliance might say, we need all these different pieces of documents to onboard this particular type of user, right? Now it's th that's compliance's job to hand that over, right? And mm -hmm. then CX it ideally comes back and says, okay, how can we streamline this process for the user, right? How can we make it easier to get the documents? Can we get some of these documents ourselves? Can we validate these documents and still meet the regulation requirements needed? But if you don't have a good relationship with your compliance team, then it is just, nope, we need all 18 pieces of documentation. Yeah. <laughs> I, I truly believe, I mean, I, I work really hard to build relationships with compliance teams within any organization I go into because when you do, there's an ability to have a conversation about how to advocate for the user experience and translate the needs of the business to be compliant and meet in the middle. And, you know, Absolutely. You propose these ideas and have a conversation, uh, you know, I have a little bit of background in fraud and risk. So I recognize there's a heart of purpose in that work. And it feels like compliance and risk teams can often be seen as like a barrier to innovation, maybe because it, you're competing against different goals and priorities of, of other teams that are really growth focused. Right. But um, I, I don't know. I've always, I, I know you pretty well, Scott, and you know, you're pretty relaxing and easy to work with. Is, is that something, is that a strategy that you've developed intentionally or is that just your personality? Uh, no, I, I would definitely say it's probably not my personality, uh, though I, you know, I, I think I, I'm drawn to the function of compliance because of a kind of a, a desire for order and structure. 
in my personal life, right? Uh, but I've been in various compliance roles for all manner of startups going back to 2013. And then prior to that, I'd worked at banks and brokerage firms, and you know, I was a regulator for a while. Um, and in those places, things were much more black and white. The lines were fixed. These were the guardrails. And I mean, you certainly never went over the guardrails. You didn't even really approach them. Um, you know, everything was yeah. just very well structured. But one of the things that I learned, and not to get off topic, but I will, I, I think this can be a challenge for people who have that compliance or that legal or that regulatory background, who see the world of startup and, and fintech and insure tech or, you know, robo advising or payments or whatever it might be, you know, any one of these that's regulated and has some obligations there. They see this and they think it's fun. They think it's exciting. They think it's, it's sexy. But I mean, they're not wrong. It certainly can be. But it also requires that you adopt a, a certain level of comfort in being flexible but never crossing the line, but sometimes just going up and towing that line. I can't afford to be this naive. When I was naive before, when they said, here's a line, we don't cross it. This is how we do business. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, flexibility is, is the best way to describe it because you're no longer in a world where everything is quite as black and white. And sometimes you've got to get out there and be a little creative in coming up with a solution as to how you're going to address something. And again, to the point that you made earlier, where you have people that are working in CS and they are focused on the experience and the satisfaction of the customer. So when you have someone who is focused on that, working with someone on the compliance side, who's, you know, their deliverables, their KPIs, expectations for them are a, a little bit different. Someone from CS who has that bit of experience and that background and looking at things from a different perspective, from a different viewpoint through a different lens, it can be tremendously valuable. And again, given they have that level of experience and knowledge and just all the various ins and outs and all the little cracks and crevices. And I can't tell you how many times I've been somewhere and I've had the discussion. It's like, well, you know, what I'd really like to be able to do is this. And it's like, well, mm -hmm. we can't actually do that, but we can do this, which is kind of close to that. And it's like, oh my God, wow, I had no idea. And where did that come from? That came from the people that are in CS because they understand how interconnected all of these things are. Yeah, definitely. But one of the hardest things I think is the strategy or beliefs in regards to transparency with users. And when it comes to compliance, for instance, I wired some funds to a contractor who had created some vector art images for my website, right? Mm -hmm. And bank I use for my business checking used some very interesting language that was yeah. somewhat somewhat accusatory and okay. I was uh, very just as a, yeah as a CX <laughs> professional I was somewhat shocked that they were so straightforward because you know um you don't typically say this appears to be a fraudulent transaction. You might say we're reviewing this transaction or this transaction requires further review. Although I do believe there are times, especially when you're collecting excessive documentation for whatever purpose, it is good to be transparent about those reasons. But uh, yeah, I guess my question is, what are your thoughts? What are those fine lines and what you can communicate when it comes down to the intentions or the risk involved in over and under communicating? 
Yeah, you know, I, I certainly there's going to be those situations where there there are just certain things that you're not going to be able to communicate to a customer, right? Um, yeah. You know, something like a suspicious activity report. You know, okay, Leslie, yeah, we, we've been we monitor our customer accounts and through a combination of our automated monitoring as well as a research and analysis post the review of an exception, we've made the determination that this is a transaction activity that we cannot justify. It doesn't seem reasonable and appropriate for this customer. Therefore, we're going to file a suspicious activity report. But with FinCEN, which is a financial mm-hmm. crimes enforcement network, which is an arm of the Treasury and the U.S. government. There you go. So after all of that, we're, obviously that we're not allowed to. That is one of the requirements of the Bank Secrecy Act. So you're, you're not allowed to disclose that that was filed. Okay, fair enough. But if you've identified something taking place in a customer's account, I've always certainly been a, a proponent for using softer rather than harsher language as to why a financial institution would choose to use language that could be perceived as, I don't know, accusatory, (laughs) you know, somehow implying that you had something to do with it or you know what's going on or, uh, you know, or you're you're trying to do something inappropriate or illicit. I, I don't know. That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. I can't understand why they would want to take such a harsh tone in that communication. Uh, but that said, uh, it, it certainly isn't surprising that you, know, you encountered a financial institution that did. I, I, I would imagine it's probably more prevalent than, than not. Yeah, I actually wasn't even upset that it was, you know, being paused for review because I know that it is systems monitoring certain transactions that are flagged i just as a cx professional was just shocked by the language used <laughs> the other day I, i'm not doing anything wrong and i don't know it didn't really bother me that much again it was just i was shocked but i think there are times that it helps to be transparent, right? If you need to onboard a business account and you need to collect their articles of incorporation, their EIN, you know, all these various documents in order to provide them a business account, maybe stating, you know, <laughs> like why this is necessary is just yeah. Maybe it's passing the blame to someone else because I find that a lot of people do get annoyed having to provide so much documentation, especially if they're opening an account that they think is, you know, just a simple kind of tooling for their business. But in those instances, I'm like, I do try and push just because, yeah, it is it is it is a pass of the blame to the the government, I guess. Um, (laughs) But no, when it comes to fraud related things, probably best to just even in the banning of of accounts. Right. Uh, Generic as possible. Unable to support your account, sir. I I apologize. We can provide you no further information because obviously you don't want to teach them your fraud metrics, right? No, no. And and you and I have had discussions about that very topic in the past. I think you also raise an interesting point. Just even this recent experience that you have just reinforces why fintech companies became so popular and have blossomed Mm -hmm. over the last however many years. That was due in no small part to the fact that your legacy financial institutions, the Citigroups, the JP Morgans, the Bank of Americas of the world, they struggle with customer support. They struggle with customer experience. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, that that is just not something that they are strong on. Now, are, are they doing better? Have they identified as an industry that this is an area where they, that they need to improve in? 
I would say absolutely, with, with, without a doubt that they have. Now, have they still been able to make the type of progress that they probably need to make or would like to see made, particularly when compared to the same type of progress or, or similar types of progress you would see from a fintech operating in this space? If you look at the customer experience ratings that are coming from a Robinhood or from a Stripe or from a PayPal or something like that versus, hey, how would you rate Bank of America versus so-and-so, <laughs> odds are that fintech company is going to be rated higher because that's yeah. something that they're focused on. You know, that was the pitch from day one. We need the bank partners because the bank partners are the ones who are going to help us you know, with all of the payment rails and the plumbing behind the scenes to move value from A to B or to offer whatever money-related service it is that we want to offer. But where we're going to set ourselves apart, where we're going to differentiate ourselves is because we are going to be laser-focused on making that customer happy, the experience of that customer, customer satisfaction. We're going to have people here who share that mindset. And really, I mean, you should have people that share that mindset set regardless of what department or team they're part of. It shouldn't just be customer support's burden to take all of that on because you never know. Again, going back to the topic of early stage startups, it's entirely possible you as the head of legal or someone in the compliance department or whatever might find yourself fielding uh, you know, the email from disgruntled customers in Zendesk or perhaps getting on a, a call with a customer to discuss an issue or concern that they have. And hopefully, if it's a bad experience, doing your part to de-escalate it, right? Um, yeah. you know, the, these, these, these are skills that are tremendously important across all departments across all teams got to have them. Uh, but, but I think that's why you, you see that that kind of difference because fintech, that's what they focused on. And your legacy banks still struggle to make some progress there. Yeah. I, I mean, they're a little bit bigger. So I, I, I give them a little bit of a break just because it's a little bit harder, you know, you have thousands of support. Sure, to, sure. To get, but, but there's still some strategies that you can build in to really mitigate some of that user frustration. Um, I mean, Robinhood was an interesting example to provide. <laughs> Let us take a moment to reminisce on the day that was January 28th, 2021. We had to make a very difficult decision. We made the decision in the morning to limit the buying of about 13 securities on our platform. So to be clear, uh, customers could still sell uh, those securities if they had positions in them. I just threw that, I was gonna say Coinbase first, but then I was like, um, no, Coinbase is notorious. God, hopefully we're not gonna get sued. Uh, but like Coinbase was notorious for having really bad customer service. like. Oh. tremendously tremendously bad i could not get kyc verified there you go coinbase for two years and then i gave up went to gemini and then eventually just randomly one day tried to like do the whole because they they make you take a photo with your id and then a post-it note with the date and like it, it's it's a lot but i again working in this background i understand it's like proof of life in a kidnap situation you know Hold up a paper so we know it's you. Exactly. I get it, though. But um, I did it so many times, and I still couldn't get – I couldn't yeah. get verified, and I eventually gave up. And, um, yeah. I, you know, now now I use Coinbase and uh, actually have their subscription. So 
But uh, that was yeah, that was actually really frustrating. Yeah. And I mean, th- that's that's the way it is. And you know, no, of course, it's not the person in customer support that made that decision. I mean, they they didn't determine what Coinbase's onboarding standard was. They didn't. That person in customer support did not implement whatever type of non-documentary and documentary KYC customer identification requirements existed. They were just the ones. They were the messenger that was going to get shot for it. But you know, at the end of the day, it still translates into that is not a good experience, and you know that you know, it's 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 perceived negatively. I well, I I don't even think I talked to a customer support agent because it was all it seemed to be like all automated through I I don't know what yeah. platform they do for their their KYC verifications. But uh, after a couple times, I was just like just really annoyed because it's like you know I was trying different angles. I was like I don't know what I'm doing wrong. This is me. It, my ID doesn't look that much different than me. Uh, you know, it's I. I I couldn't understand. But then I tried again two years later and had no problem. I don't know what was going on operationally at that time when I tried to sign up, but um, they definitely had some issues and apparently they got them worked out. I have no idea, but good. You know, that's great. I, I don't know. It's all about risk. I, I mean, I. I guess, right? It's all about risk. I, I don't know. I sympathize. It, it, it's not even. I'm getting super off topic here, but it's not even <laughs> it, it's not even necessarily risk in regards to like startups or companies or products that I'm using, but it, it risk like translates back to like every part of my life, like even like crossing the street. Like a good example, a, a good example is this weekend I drove to Nogales, Mexico for a friend's birthday. And okay. I don't know if you've ever been there. They, they essentially have no traffic laws, like none, no, like none. It is the wild, wild west. And after okay. about 30 minutes of navigating these streets, I started to realize like, okay, I just, I need to adjust. I need to adjust what my concept of driving is. And I need to like, I guess, take some risks and go and cut people off. It amazingly, that experience reminded me of so many times in early stage startups where I'm like, okay, I need to adjust my expectations of how companies, my previous companies I've worked at operated and, um, and you know, how this company operates, I need to adjust. And, you know, but at the same time, that experience set a tone for me. You know, I'm unfortunately never going back to Nogales, Mexico. (laughs) It's just, it was just too far out of the realm of normal expectations for me. And, yeah, again, this is like super off topic, but in some ways, it it maybe relates to brand management. I, I yeah, I think the the story that you just shared about going to Nogales is actually really interesting, because it also highlights the fact that being too risk averse can also be a negative, right? So you're down there, you're driving around, but you're driving around in in such a way, in a, a certain fashion, that clearly. Uh, identifies you as someone who is not familiar with the area or not familiar with the local customs or not from the area or whatever it might be, that could put you at risk. So, you know, while on one hand, you know, you're kind of used to driving a certain way in the city and the state where you live, um, you go there and, and people drive a different way if you don't adapt to that, or perhaps what is compared to your everyday, take a little bit more risk in what you're doing you could actually be putting yourself in a situation that is 
more dangerous than just simply going, hey, you know, I'm going to be a little bit more aggressive behind the wheel because this is how things work here. I just think it's interesting because you can certainly see some correlation to that and, you know, that, that idea, that mentality. And if you are trying to get a business up and running, you're trying to get your service out there. You're looking and seeing what your competitors are doing, or at least trying to deconstruct it, reconstruct it, figure it out. You know, if there's areas or ways in which you can maybe be a little bit more aggressive, that might be better. Where taking the least aggressive approach might actually be detrimental to your intent or your plan, your business, whatever. Oh, yeah. And I mean, now that we're talking about it even further, it's also uh, it may be important to protect the the people on the platform of your product that are maybe less familiar with certain types of like scams or risks or these kind of things in place. So, you know, um, just make your product as um, familiar as possible. So, that, yeah. you know, um, innovate disrupt but don't completely reinvent the user experience in which people are familiar with i knew going to mexico it was going to be different i did not know it was going to be that different and so <laughs> a whole new world a new fantastic point of view no anyways um i'm interested to know how has the regulatory landscape for fintech companies evolved in recent years? And, and what trends do you see emerging in the future? So without a doubt, uh, over the last 10 years, at least uh, 10 years, I've been in the uh, financial services fintech industry. Regulators are, have definitely become more experienced. They're more knowledgeable. Your ability as someone who is operating a fintech platform or who hopes to operate a fintech platform, uh, you know, if, if your plan is to go in and kind of razzle-dazzle a regulator with a lot of techie type buzzwords because you think you're going to overwhelm them and the regulator's just going to slink away. Not the case anymore. Uh, Was the, that the, a strategy the, previously? Oh, oh, for for sure. I mean, particularly in the crypto, in the world of crypto. Back in the day, just starting to talk about blockchain and uh, you know permissionless and non-custodial decentralized cryptocurrency exchange, and you know, boof, oh, let's just blow people's minds and you know, drop the mic and walk out of a room, uh, and then we'll let them sort it out later, and we'll just go do what we do. But the regulator's competency has increased dramatically, particularly at the federal level. Their competency, their knowledge, they've got many years of experience now regulating, interacting with various participants, business participants, commercial participants, entrepreneurs in this space. So you're not going to be able to do that anymore. And you haven't been able to do it for a while anyway. Uh, as, as for the future, I think there, there's, there's going to continue to be a big crackdown on banking as a service. If you go and you oh. look at someone like Blue Ridge Bank, who was a financial institution that was doing a lot of banking for fintech startups, um, you know that fintech startup does not have a license. Uh, you know they're not registered with FinCEN as an MSB. They're not a bank, nothing like that. Uh, so Blue Ridge Bank would provide all of the money movement, the services to the fintech again, as we talked about before, freeing up the fintech company to focus on the customer experience, that interaction with the customer, the technology layer that that sat on top of everything happening behind the scenes that the customer never really saw. Blue Ridge was found to have a, a 
pretty substantial number of deficiencies when compliance review and audit was conducted by the federal regulators. Various deficiencies across all manner of compliance obligations, consumer compliance, AML, UDAP, which which would be focused on marketing and uh, advertising related compliance concerns. I mean, they just they really got hammered. Right now, if you are looking for a bank that is the poster child for what not to do when it comes to being a bank that is offering banking as a service, they would be it. I think any bank that's out there right now that's doing that is looking at what what happened with Blue Ridge Bank. And if they're not, they should absolutely be reassessing whatever systems and controls that they have to enforce compliance across their banking as a service customers to ensure that um, you know, they, are, they themselves are not going to encounter the same problems with whoever their regulator might be. Okay. Wow. I mean, that's super insightful, but very worrisome just with everything going on in the economy right now. Um, But I digress. Um, Scott, I just want to give you a huge shout out. Seriously. I mean, you're amazing. I think so highly of you. And I just really thank you so much for coming on today. This was, this was so much fun. Thank you. This was, this was great. I I very much enjoyed it. And it was great to sit and spend some time with you. We haven't chatted in quite a while. I know. So, it's been nice. Yeah, it was. Yeah, you know, while while we didn't cover a whole lot other than the topic, uh, it, it was it was it was really great. I I, I really enjoyed it, and you know, and I love everything that you're doing with Smooth. And so I I, I couldn't be happier for you personally. Oh, I, I could not be happier for you personally, and I I, I wish you uh, all the success. Aww. We're gonna have a good time. Always. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Startup Smoothie Podcast. Seriously, it means a lot. Don't forget to tune in next week where we'll be chatting with Samia Kapoor, the CEO and co-founder of The Loops, about CX, covering its past, present, and future. Trust us, you don't want to miss it.